looking the truth in the face of what happened on October 7th leads you to the conclusion that Israel has to fight this war. It's not that October 7th gave Israel legitimacy. It's the reason this war is happening. And if you don't want Israel to fight this war, then you cover it up. You deny it. There is a certain section of the world who you're going to put out the videos and they'll say it's AI. And if it's not AI, then it was the Israelis who did it. And you're simply never going to win because they can't admit the truth. Because if they admit the truth, they lose. Because they admit that Israel has to fight this war. And they don't want it to. They want it to lose this war. They want Hamas to win. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Elon Levy. Elon, welcome to the show. Hello, Brendan. It's good to be here. Elon, you won't need much of an introduction for our listeners. They will have seen you on their TV screens over the past few months in your capacity as a spokesman for the Israeli government. And you've really been making Israel's case in the aftermath of the Hamas pogrom of 7th of October and during Israel's war on Hamas in the Gaza Strip. And as I've watched you clash with British broadcasters in particular, I've often found myself thinking that yours is a pretty thankless task by the looks of things. So I, I want to start off by asking you, I guess, what it's been like to be in the front line of the information war over the past few months and, and what you've gleaned about the Western media while you've been doing this. Uh Pretty thankless is classic British understatement. <laughs> the, the, the last three months uh, of my life have been the longest and weirdest three months of my life. If you told me that the war was going to lead to me having my own character on Israel's version of Saturday Night Live, I'd have told you that you're absolutely crazy. Uh, but somehow I found myself in this position as one of the leading faces and voices making Israel's case to the world in what is still the number one news story. And I find that I, like Israel and the story that I'm telling, divides opinion. Uh, there are people within the pro-Israel community, within the Jewish world, among our supporters and allies, uh, who have been very supportive and telling me that I've been making a very forceful case for Israel and helping to communicate its points and its arguments in a way that hasn't been done previously. But then, of course, there's the flip side. And if I had a pound for every time someone called me a modern-day Goebbels on Twitter, uh, then I could comfortably retire. Um, there is a large and very violent campaign of intimidation around the world, trying to make it impossible to express support for Israel at all. We, we can get onto that. Um, and that is making it difficult for other people as well to pick up the baton and run and speak uh, for Israel. Now, you know, when dealing with the international media, uh, each country has its own particular nuances, each different uh, news outlet, different journalists as well. And it's definitely been a baptism by fire trying to adapt to the different formats. On the one hand, the press conferences and then the more challenging TV interviews and then trying to come up with original content, towing the line between government spokesman and content creator to try to reach audiences that aren't getting their messages through the traditional media. Yeah, that's, that's a very good jumping off point for some of the things I want to talk to you about. And I think one of the things that has also struck me is that very often, I think one of the problems someone like you probably faces is that you, you're very often talking at cross purposes with some of the journalists that you speak to. And you can even see that at the level of language. So you're there to talk to them about Israel's war with Hamas, a war that Hamas started on the 7th of October, a war that Israel didn't want and no one in Israel wanted it. So you're there to talk about a war, how the war is going, why the war is being fought and how it's being fought. 
And yet what they're often saying on the other side, they're using language like ethnic cleansing or genocide or forced movement of people or starvation. So there's even at the level of language, there is a real tension between how you understand the conflict and many other people understand the conflict, which is that this is a just war by Hamas against a fascistic movement that attacked Israel uh, uh, on the 7th of October and how it's presented to you by other people. So how do you cope with that when you can't even use the same words as the person that you're talking to? It's definitely an enormous challenge because it's obvious to everyone in Israel that we are fighting a just war and a defense war, a defensive war. I, I go blue in the face saying it's not a war we started. It's not a war we wanted. It's not even a war we expected. It's a war that was declared on us and it's a war that we have to win. Uh, that's obvious to everyone inside Israel. The problem is we are coming up against a very large machine, not only the Palestinian spokespeople, but UN agencies that have been complicit with Hamas have adopted the Palestinian narrative hook and sinker. The whole so-called human rights industry that have decided to throw their lot in with Hamas and with the Palestinian cause uh, and try to force Israel to stop this war with the hostages still in Gaza and Hamas in power. And they're shifting the Overton window. Uh, you know, in Israel, when we followed the proceedings at the ICJ, it felt like we were living in a different parallel universe because on October 7th, we were the victims of an act of genocide. Okay, Hamas is a genocidal terrorist organization with avowed genocidal intentions that perpetrated the bloodiest massacre of Jews since the Holocaust. And we are fighting against that to bring them to justice. And the fact that South Africa then made this spurious and specious lawsuit in which it was exploiting the genocide convention in order to shield the perpetrators of an actual genocide, people here are tearing their hair out and don't understand how we are facing such a well-oiled machinery of hatred and propaganda against us that will sink to uh, stop at nothing and sink to absolute new lows in order to try to force us to stop defending ourselves. Uh, and that's a challenge because you want to be able to respond to these allegations without giving them any sort of legitimacy or any sort of credit or even repeating some of these terms because they're so outrageous. Um, but notice how we're fighting a war in the information battle in which nothing Israel does uh, will ever be good enough for the people who have decided that they just don't want Israel to defend its people. They don't want Israel to bring down Hamas. Uh, they say that Israel shouldn't attack because there are civilians there. So Israel asks civilians to get out of the way, and then it's ethnic cleansing or forced displacement. Uh, they tell Israel that they shouldn't use force from the air and they should be more targeted. So Israeli forces go into a hospital to be as targeted as possible. And then they told them that they shouldn't be raiding a hospital because they're supposed to be protected, even though terrorists are hiding in the basement of the hospital. Uh, so the goalposts keep moving in accordance with this movement that simply doesn't want Israel to defend itself full stop. And so no matter what we do to try to adapt to the very high standards that we hold ourselves to of international law and morality, people are always going to make the most outrageous claims, unfortunately, because some people will literally believe anything and literally believe any lies about Israel. They're just incredibly receptive to that sort of messaging. Yeah, it, it is astonishing the extent to which Everything Israel does is is treated as a war crime by the precisely the activist class and and sections of the media that, as you mentioned there, you know as you say, if if civilians die in Gaza as civilians die in every war, tragically, that's a war crime. 
if uh, but then if Israel tells civilians, you know, move away from this area because we're going to be pursuing Hamas, that's a war crime as well. So Israel can't do right for doing wrong. It's extraordinary the the extent to which that language is weaponized against Israel. And you mentioned there the the ICJ. And I did want to ask you about that specifically, about South Africa's case and the cheerleading of it. You're absolutely right. It's a very astute point. But the problem is so much worse. It's not only that this language is weaponized against Israel. It is weaponized in a way that serves Hamas's war goals. And I don't think many people in the foreign media understand how Hamas is manipulating them. Hamas basically has two strategies now to try to survive this war after the October 7 massacre. The first is psychological terrorism against the Israeli people, releasing sick hostage videos to try to use the hostages as a bargaining chip to force an end of the war where Hamas gets to declare victory. That's one strategy. But the other is the Hamas human shield strategy. It spent 16 years deliberately building an underground city of military infrastructure protected by the infrastructure above ground. It built a tunnel network reportedly one and a half times the length of the London underground with all the shafts poking out in homes, schools, hospitals, mosques. And it does that because one of three things is going to happen, okay? Either Israel attacks that military infrastructure and people are going to get hurt and then the world is going to accuse Israel of war crimes. Or Israel will ask civilians to please get out of the way temporarily for your safety because terrorists are trying to use you as human shields, and then Israel will be accused of forcible displacement. Or Hamas gains immunity for its military infrastructure, even though international law doesn't give terrorists immunity just because they're hiding in the basement of a hospital. And Hamas gets to win either way. So when people then accuse Israel and point the finger at it, Uh, and and blame it for the civilian casualties we're seeing in Gaza, despite the unprecedented measures it has taken to protect civilians in an urban battlefield that no army in the history of the world has ever had to deal with. They're telling the terrorists, keep going. Your strategy is working because either you're going to shield your targets or your targets will get hit, but then we're going to blame Israel anyway and pressure it to stop targeting them. And it's important to understand how Hamas is manipulating Western sensibilities to try to survive the October 7 massacre still on its feet. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, It's so clear that those sections of Western society are providing moral cover to Hamas and and are assisting Hamas, uh, you know, in a very tangible way. So in, in relation to that, on the ICJ question, I did want to get some further thoughts on that. Because it seems to me pretty clearly that there's been this extraordinary inversion of morality and truth over the past few months, and especially over the past few weeks, where, as you say, you have a situation where Israel is attacked by a genocidal terrorist organization, and yet it's Israel that is accused of acting in a genocidal fashion. Israel is attacked by a fascistic movement, and yet it's Israel that is referred to as fascistic by certain sections of the uh, of the Western activist class and and elements in South Africa as well. Um, so there is this continual inversion of truth and morality and this uh, pushing back of Hamas's own crimes onto Israel, which I find extraordinary. But in relation to the ICJ case in particular, I wanted to get your thoughts on what the attitude to that was in Israel amongst people you know, when you see that you're fighting a war against a terror movement, a war that you didn't want to fight, and then you find South Africa dragging you to the highest court in, in the world and, and essentially accusing you of behaving, well, like the Nazis. That's essentially what some of these people are saying. 
What is the response in Israel? What do people make of something like that? It's completely Kafkaesque. The feeling in Israel is that the world has simply gone mad. This is the first time in history that the victims of an actual act of genocide have been accused of that crimes. The descendants of the victims of the Nazis, okay, you have Israeli soldiers whose grandparents are Holocaust survivors, are being accused of genocide for fighting the successors of the Nazis who are trying to finish off their job. So Israelis are looking at the international court saying, wait a minute, Hamas just burned whole families alive and perpetrated atrocities so brutal you can't describe them on television. What do you expect us to do? They are starving, torturing, raping, and executing hostages in the terror dungeons right now. What are you expecting us to do? Now look, our commitment to international law is of course unwavering and independent of any ICJ proceedings, as is our right to self-defense. And the good news from the ICJ is that South Africa bought this lawsuit in order to try to get the court to order Israel to stop the war against Hamas, withdraw its forces, abandon the hostages, and leave Hamas standing. And the court threw that out. The court accepted that Israel has a right to defend itself. It accepted that this conflict began with Hamas's atrocities on October 7th. It called for the immediate and unconditional release of the hostages. Uh, and so South Africa didn't get what it wanted, uh, which was an injunction that would have tried to force Israel to abandon the hostages and leave Hamas standing. But we think it's outrageous and really insane that the ICJ is even entertaining these spurious charges. We think it should have thrown them out completely. Um, you know, it's especially painful for us, and the Israeli ad hoc judge on the panel, Aaron Barak, wrote about this. Um, he himself is a Holocaust survivor. By the way, the only survivor of an actual genocide who was on the ICJ bench said that the uh, allegations were, of course, completely absurd. It's very personal for us because the crime of genocide was codified internationally in the wake of the Holocaust. It was termed, the, the word was coined by a Polish-Jewish lawyer in the wake of the Holocaust to try to create a new word to describe the horrors that the Nazis had unleashed. And so it's obvious to us why we signed up to the genocide convention, because never again means never again. But one of the lines that has become very resonant in Israel is that never again is now. This was a terror organization that had Holocaust survivors literally running for their lives, who abducted their children and giving them flashbacks to the Nazis in their nightmares right now. And we know that we are fighting uh, terrorists who would gladly murder each and every one of us as brutally and barbarically as possible. And the fact that South Africa tried to get us to stop and, and basically tell Hamas, come on, let us have it, let us have it, um, really people look and, and, and really think the world has gone slightly mad. Hi, it's Brendan here. I just wanted to remind you that you can still buy my book. It's called A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. And I've really been blown away by the response to it from readers, reviewers, Spike supporters. People really like this book. And I think you're going to like it too. It covers all the insanities of our time from climate change hysteria through to COVID authoritarianism, through to the trans ideology and it basically makes the case for more freedom of speech, more debate, and more heretical thinking to challenge the conformism of our times. So what are you waiting for? Go to Amazon right now and order my book, 
A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable, and now on with the show. So on on that point you make there, which I think is an important one, about the word genocide, where it comes from, what it means, uh, I think that's a really important point to dwell on for a moment, because one of the things I have found most horrific over the past few months, and I've been thinking about this for actually for a few years, is the way in which the language of genocide is used against Israel so often by sections of uh, uh, society in, in, in the West in particular, and of course elsewhere. And it seems to me that's really moved up a notch since the 7th of October. And you will often see on demonstrations in London and other cities, you will often see placards saying that uh, the Israelis are the new Nazis. And as you say, you're referred to as a Goebbels character by some people on the internet. Um, you know, zeo Nazi is a term that you will often see. And it, it, again and again, you see these accusations against Israel that they have become the thing that they once uh, were persecuted by. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that because it is done so much more in relation to Israel than any other country on earth. I mean, you will often see, you know, like the Bosnian Serbs, for example, were sometimes referred to as the new Nazis. And you'll often see words like genocide used in relation to conflicts that I think are just really bloody wars rather than genocide. So we do see an overuse of that language in my view, but it is particularly used against Israel. How do you explain that? I mean, to me, it just looks like Jew baiting, Jew taunting, a way of inducing extraordinary pain amongst the descendants of the survivors of the Holocaust. That I, I can find no other way to understand such a, a vindictive use of language against the Jewish state that, than seeing it in those terms. You're right. There is something that is definitely very vindictive about it. Vindictive, dehumanizing. We see that with the tearing down of hostage posters. I know speaking to many people in the British Jewish community, they were horrified to learn that many of their neighbors, who they thought were perfectly normal people, are in fact perfectly happy to tear down a poster of a kidnapped two-year-old child. Um, I think it's a mistake to treat the anti-Israel movement as having some kind of grievance when it is clearly a pathology. Israel plays a role in a very warped worldview uh, that doesn't end with us. It has much bigger implications for the health of democracy and free societies, um, in which the Jew or the Jewish state is the perpetual bogeyman. And throughout history, um, in the West, people have used the character of Jews to always define what they are not. If they are cosmopolitan, the Jews are nationalists. If they're nationalists, the Jews are cosmopolitan. If they're capitalists, the Jews are communists. If they're communists, the Jews are capitalists. And we see that now as well uh, unfolding in the Western world, that a lot of the arguments that are taking place about Israel are in fact other societies projecting their own uh, neuroses and fantasies onto Israel instead of understanding what is really going on. And there is definitely something very vindictive, a sense that perhaps uh, they haven't forgiven the Jews for Auschwitz. Um, what that showed about the world, about the enlightened world we thought existed before, and the willingness to use this really sickening language in order to tell Holocaust survivors, the people who had to flee barefoot on October 7th, uh, 
that they have no right to defend themselves is sickening and deeply problematic. And, and again, it's not just a problem for us. When you see the same people who are chanting in favor of Hamas and protesting for Hamas on the streets of the West, also chanting, Yemen, Yemen, make us proud, turn another ship around. They're calling for attacks on British forces. They're calling for attacks on British targets. And the dehumanization and hatefulness and vindictiveness that is pointed at Jews and pointed towards Israel as the Jewish state always ultimately devours the societies that allow it to fester instead of understanding the deep-rooted pathology that they have to confront and deal with as, as a threat to their own, their own freedom and their own democracies. Yeah. Uh, what has become so clear to me since the 7th of October is that it seems to me there is no difference at all now between so-called anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism. I mean, or, or else the line between those two things is now so thin that it's uh, it's invisible. Because, I, you know, as you're saying there, it's so interesting that all the things that used to be said about the Jews are now said about the Jewish state. Yeah. You know, they uh, they love spilling blood. I mean, even if you look at the uh, uh, myopic focus on um, the children who, younger people who are tragically dying as a consequence of the war that Hamas started, there is this uh, obsessive focus on them and the idea that Israel is purposefully killing them because that's what Israel does, that's what those people do. Yeah. You know, the idea of bloodlust, the idea of Israel as an all-powerful state that puppeteers America and puppeteers Britain, the idea of you know global control, all those prejudices are coming back. We've seen this all before. We're having a very strong set deja vu but but on steroids at the moment yeah exactly and i think that's that's really something important to call out um i wanted to ask you about the uh 7th of october attacks themselves and the um interpretation of them by sections of the west because you've outlined very well there uh the fact that this was a severe attack the worst attack on jewish people since the holocaust a very grave the worst act of racist terrorism certainly of my lifetime a really extraordinary event the whole death toll was the equivalent of the whole north tower yeah yeah exactly so it's it, truly extraordinary and uh, the idea that Israel should not have responded to it or should not pursue the people responsible for it strikes me as utterly surreal. Um, but you will know more than most that there has been a lot of 7th of October denialism in the West. And we've seen people, you know, for example, people are either quiet about it. So even feminists whose slogan for the past few years has been believe women are refusing to believe those women, the women of southern Israel. You don't believe those women. Instead, in that situation, you believe the fascistic terrorists, in fact. You don't believe the women. Um, and and some people outright say that 7th of October uh, was an inside job, or most people were killed by Israeli forces, not by Hamas. Or they say, you know, where's the evidence? We, we can't be sure that women were raped. We can't be sure that children were killed on purpose. You know, we haven't seen all the evidence. It does sound to a lot of us like a new form of genocide denial. So, how have you? How do you see that? What What do you think is driving that in particular? One hundred percent. You know, I um, when Israel announced that it was going to screen forty three minutes of the atrocities uh, in a closed screening for journalists in Israel, I gave a press conference and explained that this was in order to combat a Holocaust denial like phenomenon evolving in real time. 
And after I got off the podium, uh, an official pulled me aside and said, listen, I think you went a little bit over the top. And I said, no, I don't think you're seeing what is happening online. You are not seeing the level of rampant denialism. When October 7 happened, it triggered jubilation and celebrations. On October 7th, on October 8th, was when we heard people chanting, gas the Jews on the steps of the Sydney Opera House. The protests that we are seeing now began with the spontaneous celebrations immediately when the massacre happened. And I understand why people have to deny them as part of their cognitive dissonance coping mechanism. Because when the truth came out about how barbaric these atrocities were, about what these death squads perpetrated, how they burned whole families alive, how they committed acts of gang rape and pedophilia and necrophilia, and I'm right, I don't want to get into the details, they're then forced to confront what their Hamas heroes did. And no one can possibly defend that. So the only coping mechanism is to deny it, to deny it or to downplay it. And that's why I think within the whole human rights, so-called human rights community, we've seen nothing more than lip service to the question of the hostages, to the question of the atrocities of October 7th. Because they understand that if the atrocities are really as awful and horrific as they were in reality, then obviously Israel has no choice but to fight and bring Hamas to justice and bring the hostages home. But they don't want Israel to fight to bring Hamas down and bring the hostages home because they've taken the Palestinian side of the story, because they support the Palestinian cause of from the river to the sea and the violent eradication of the state of Israel. So you can't then admit what atrocities were perpetrated. You can't campaign for the hostages who are being starved and tortured and executed and raped as we speak. Because if you do that, you are strengthening Israel's case that we have a natural and obvious right to defend our people. So we see this huge cover-up in order to try to undermine Israel's right to defend itself. And we've seen at most lip service, at most lip service from the organizations that are supposed to stand up for human rights. I think Amnesty International had one tweet with a photo of hostages, and they chose the Thai workers. They couldn't even bring themselves to post uh, photos of the Israeli hostages. UNICEF put out a tweet on the birthday of the youngest hostage when he turned one without mentioning his name and without his photo. It's as if we're being erased from this story because looking the truth in the face of what happened on October 7th leads you to the conclusion that Israel has to fight this war. And if you don't want Israel to fight this war, then you cover it up. You deny it. Um, And so it's a dilemma here. What do you do with the videos of the atrocities? Do you put them out? On the one hand, we don't need to satisfy people's lust for atrocity porn. On the other hand, you have to show them the evidence of what happened. This isn't, it's not that October 7th gave Israel legitimacy for a war that we wanted. And hey, now we have an excuse. It's the reason this war is happening. But then on the other hand, there is a certain section of the world who you're going to put out the videos and they'll say it's AI. And if it's not AI, then it was the Israelis who did it. And you're simply never going to win because they can't admit the truth. Because if they admit the truth, they lose. Because they admit that Israel has to fight this war. And they don't want it to. They want it to lose this war. They want Hamas to win.
If you're a regular listener to this show or a regular reader of Spiked, why not become a Spiked supporter? Spiked Supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked supporter and get access to lots of exciting perks. Spiked supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop and bookmark articles as you browse. This is our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere can read us and listen to us. We're incredibly grateful for your generosity. If you don't give to Spiked yet, now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spike supporters account. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. Yeah, that's, that's, that's very well said. And uh, on that question, I wanted to ask you specifically about the issue of sexual violence. I mean, I don't want to get into the details of what happened. Uh, it's 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 horrible stuff, and I think most reasoned people of good faith know the kind of things that happened. We've read about it. We've seen the reports, even in the New York Times, even in the Guardian. Both have done long reports on on the crimes that were committed against women. Um, in uh, the in Parliament here in London this week, uh, Cheryl Sandberg uh, chaired a discussion about the use of sexual violence on uh, during the pogrom of seventh of October. Um, Cherie Blair was there, and a few other female dignitaries as well. I was really pleased to see that, but all instantly online there was this backlash of people essentially saying, "Shut up! You know, stop talking about this. Stop lying." You know, <laughs> men on the internet with Palestine flag in their uh, social media bios telling women to shut up about rape and you think Incredible. that's not something I ever thought I would see but it's you know you will know that it took UN women months I think or certainly weeks to make any comment yeah right right ages to make any comment about the sexual violation uh, the the violent violation of women on 7th of October and as I said earlier feminists for years have been saying look believe all women when women come forward with a story about sexual assault or rape, we need to believe them. We need to treat them with compassion and listen to them. And that's been thrown out of the window. I mean, is there any coming back from this for Western feminists or the Western left, the speed with which they ditched every single one of their so-called principles in order to disbelieve Israeli women, disbelieve Israeli uh, victims of a fascistic attack? Is there any coming back from that? I mean, surely their moral authority on these questions has now been completely shattered. Well, we think the moral authority of the anti-Israel movement was shattered before they started defending uh, the rapists of October 7th. It shouldn't take courage for celebrities to do what Gwyneth Paltrow did and tweet, rape is not resistance. You know, we say only half cynically that these people are defending freedom rapists, right? If you're calling terrorists freedom fighters, then what do they do when they commit acts of sexual atrocities? Now, by the way, this wasn't just on October 7th. We fear there is ongoing sexual abuse of the hostages in the terror dungeons, women and men alike. Um, we're very careful not to say anything that hasn't been reported in the media, but doctors have spoken with media about how. Half of the hostages who 
have been released and survived Hamas captivity, either experienced or witnessed sexual abuse. Uh, Aviva Siegel, one of the hostage survivors whose husband Keith is still trapped in Gaza, gave chilling testimony in the Knesset last week, talking about how Hamas uh, dresses the girls up in dolls' clothes and treats them as puppets on a string does with them whatever they want, whenever they want. And she said the same thing happens to the men. The only difference is they can't get pregnant. It is beyond horrific to think about what is happening. And that is why we're fighting to bring them back. And I can tell you that uh, October 7th was a very disturbing moment for a lot of uh, liberal and progressive Jews as well, who saw themselves as part of the progressive movement and human rights movement because they identified with these values and with these causes. And then at the moment that Jews and Israelis were the victims of the most barbaric atrocities, found their colleagues celebrating the atrocities, glorifying them, condoning them, finding excuses for them, covering them up, denying them, and they felt profound betrayal profound betrayal. Um, And I know of many people who had previously thought of themselves on that end of the political spectrum, who felt betrayed, who looked left and right and realized the enlightened world is a much darker place than they thought it was. And the people who they thought stood up for their values, the NGOs, the UN agencies that they thought genuinely stood for human rights, they realize are now simply working as Hamas front organizations that have been mobilized in support of the Palestinian cause. And there are no moral depths to which they will not sink in order to try to advance the Palestinian cause over the state of Israel and the Jewish people, even when it means covering up for for the most barbaric sexual atrocities. Yeah, uh, I couldn't agree more. Uh, And we mentioned um, UN women there. And I want to ask you about UNRWA, which is the UN um, Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees. huge scandal around UNRWA. I mean, I've been reading uh, shocking reports about UNRWA's behaviour for a long time, but over the past week or so, there's been a a huge scandal because um, it is alleged that um, 12 people who are employed by UNRWA were involved in the 7th of October pogrom. And we know that significant numbers of UNRWA staff are members of Hamas or Islamic Jihad or certainly have close links with those terror organisations. And so Britain and Australia and and America and other countries have have cut their funding to UNRWA and it's caused a huge storm. Um, Tell us a little bit about why you think that's an important decision. I mean, I know Israel has had a problem with UNRWA for a very long time. So explain to us how deep the rot lies in relation to an organisation like that. Where to start? The UN Secretary General said he was shocked by the allegations against UNRWA. Uh, We don't believe him because the UN has been repeatedly confronted with evidence of the terrorist infiltration of UNRWA and responded by disparaging and defaming the independent watchdogs that were raising the alarm. UNRWA is an organization that is riddled with Hamas and it operates as a Hamas front. It hires Hamas members on a massive scale. It allows Hamas to operate out of its infrastructure, out of its schools and clinics. And it launders Hamas's talking points for the global community. Hamas says something. 
UNRWA, which is 99.9% Palestinian, repeats it. And then I have to deal with it as a statement that has come out with a UN stamp on it that gives it credibility, that goes all the way to the ICJ that then quotes UNRWA as if it is a credible source of information and not an agency that has been hijacked in the service of the Palestinian cause. Now, Look at how surreal the situation is. There are two refugee agencies in the world, the UN Refugee Agency and UNRWA. One of them deals with all the refugees in the world, and the other one deals just with Palestinians. It's existed since 1948. And whereas the UN Refugee Agency, its job is to resettle refugees from war, to rehabilitate them so that they can build their lives and they're no longer refugees. UNRWA's role is to perpetuate the refugee crisis and uniquely to give the status of refugee down the generations, even if you have citizenship in another country, even if you are a Palestinian living in what you consider to be Palestine. These are two different definitions. And they insist that the international community should fund their social services in perpetuity while covering up for Hamas and while rejecting any scrutiny or any accountability whatsoever. It's been an open secret that UNRWA has Hamas tunnels inside its schools and facilities, that its staff coordinate with Hamas, uh, that they have whole mechanisms for coordinating the distribution of aid in Gaza. The, the most amazing example I keep coming back to was at the beginning of this war when UNRWA put out a tweet saying that Hamas had stolen fuel from its stockpiles. They then deleted that tweet and put out a retraction that sounded like someone had put a gun to the uh, temple of their social media intern, denying reports on social media, i.e. their own tweet, uh, and saying that there had been no looting whatsoever. So it's covering up for Hamas. But you know, Brendan, even for people who don't care that it's covering up for Hamas, because they support Hamas or they support the Palestinians, UNRWA is simply a bad aid distribution mechanism because it isn't an aid agency. Most of its staff on the ground are teachers. It is not an agency that distributes aid. The UN has agencies that distribute aid in conflicts all around the world. And the problem we have at the moment is that UNRWA's, UNRWA is failing to distribute aid at the same pace that Israel is facilitating its entry into Gaza. More is going in than they can distribute. To cover up for their own failure and to cover up the fact they're covering up for Hamas, they're then deflecting blame onto Israel because the easiest thing is always to scapegoat Israel. Um, and then they're letting down the Palestinians in Gaza while Hamas is hijacking aid, while Hamas is hijacking aid donated thanks to you, Brendan, the UK taxpayer and other international taxpayers. So, so on the question of UNRWA specifically in the context of this conflict, forget the broader question about the Palestinian refugees. In this conflict, we think that civilians should get aid, but aid should reach civilians who need it in a way that makes sure Hamas can't steal it. And that aid should reach them through UN agencies that haven't already been compromised and infiltrated and riddled with Hamas. It's as simple as that. You know, one of the most extraordinary things I've seen the left do in recent times was on uh, shortly after this scandal blew up and, and Britain in particular said, we're going to uh, suspend funding while we investigate what's going on here. Um, 
on Holocaust Memorial Day, mm-hmm. there were leftists online saying, this is a disaster, the Palestinian people are going to starve to death, we all have to raise money for UNRWA. So you had a situation where on Holocaust Memorial Day, when we are supposed to be commemorating the worst act of the worst crime in history, the slaughter of six million Jews, you had leftists online rattling the tin for a UN agency that had just been accused of uh, having employees who took part in the worst attack on Jews since the Holocaust. And for me, that was such a revealing moment and possibly the lowest point I've seen the Islamo left reach and the anti-Israel left at the lowest point that they've reached. Um, when you see things like that, or when you hear things like that, it, people being so witless and naive about an organisation like UNRWA, how frustrating do you find that? Do you sometimes find yourself banging your head against your computer keyboard when you're supposed to be making a reasoned case for why certain actions have been taken? It's not naive, Brendan. It's vindictive, as you said. We have a situation now where, according to polls, half of American youth support Hamas, not the Palestinians, Hamas. Three quarters say that the Jews as a class are oppressors. Okay, this is a serious anti-Semitism problem. It's not just a question of naivety. It's about a whole section of the world that has taken the Palestinian side in this fight that subscribes to an ideology that says the victim is always right, the world is divided into oppressors and oppressed, there's no room for people who were oppressed like the Jews and then pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. You're either oppressed or you're an oppressor. And if you are oppressed, then no one can tell you what you can do in order to achieve your liberation, even if it's freedom raping, okay? Um, They have picked a side. They have picked a side. Um and are therefore supporting the UN agencies that have been weaponized by Hamas against Israel. And one of the challenging things for us to deal with is the fact that simply by having the letters UN in its title and on its letterhead, it immediately has greater credibility than the Prime Minister's Office of the State of Israel, right? We can present the facts, we can present the history, but if there is an organization that has UN and refugees somewhere in its title, um, there are people who are willing to go along with it because people look at the UN as having this moral authority. And one of the points we're trying to make is that we hope people in the West understand how much they are being let down by these agencies that are supposed to do vital work. The World Health Organization is supposed to do vital work. And when it can't bring itself to condemn Hamas for waging war out of hospitals, for basing its headquarters in the basement of a hospital, and instead is accusing Israel of attacking hospitals, and it's providing cover for Hamas and shielding Hamas, it is letting the whole world down and the institutions that we're supposed to rely on internationally for international peace and security. And it's tragic that these agencies, these human rights organizations, they're not being naive. In some cases, one could reasonably argue they have simply picked a side in this war. And it's not the side of the victims of the October 7 massacre. Elon, that brings me very nicely onto my final question for you. And it's about what is at stake in this war. And um, I mean, it's very clear what's at stake for the people of Israel. The, Israel's existential rights are at stake. The safety of Israeli citizens are at stake. That's why Israel is pursuing this terror group. 
But more broadly, you've touched there on some of the response in the West, especially amongst uh, Western youths who have this extraordinary level of Israelophobia, which crosses the line into blatant anti-Semitism in the way in which they talk about Jewish power, Jewish privilege, white privilege, and so on. Um, it seems to me, one of the things that has concerned me enormously since the 7th of October is that it seems that a lot of Western youths, Western activists have been sucked in by the forces of barbarism, essentially, and they make apologies for it, or they outright support it. Um, and it seems to me that this is, at, at the root of this conflict, there is an element of barbarism versus civilization. And you would hope that people would have taken the right side in that, but lots of people haven't. So isn't there something bigger than uh, Israel versus Hamas at stake in this conflict? And it does touch upon the values that we in the West ought to hold dear as well, but very often we aren't these days. So much bigger. The atrocities of October 7th and abduction of the hostages were a crime against humanity. And we believe that we are fighting for humanity on the front lines of humanity. And it's disheartening to turn around and see how much of humanity doesn't want us fighting for it. Now, for us, it's obvious what we're fighting for. By the way, I saw a, a shocking poll uh, a few days ago suggesting that um, British people up to the age of 40 were asked, if there were a world war and an imminent threat of a British invasion, would you volunteer to serve in the military? And 30% of people said they would both not volunteer and refuse to serve if Britain were at risk of imminent invasion, which is shocking because in Israel, it's obvious to everyone why we had to fight and what it means to defend your home and fight for your lives and fight for survival. But the question here is so much broader than Israel. It is a question about the future of the free world because the anti-Israel movement, the connection between Iran and the Muslim Brotherhood, and the way that it's linking into the white guilt that people are trying to offload onto Israel, is a threat to your democracy, Brendan. I saw just yesterday Mike Freer, the conservative MP for Finchley and Golders Green. My constituency, by the way, until I moved to Israel a decade ago, has announced that he is stepping down at the next elections. Because he has simply received so many death threats and narrowly avoided an assassination attempt by Islamic extremists and anti-Israel activists that he says, there is simply a point at which I say, it's not worth the risk to me personally and to my family anymore. And so you have the anti-Semites and the anti-Israel movement who are trying to dictate to the British public who can represent them. And so that violent mobilization in support of Hamas is a threat to us here in Israel, obviously, but it's also a threat to the healthy well-being of the Western world when people don't feel that they can safely say, yes, the victims of the deadliest terror attack since 9-11 have a right to defend themselves without putting their own lives literally at risk. So the question is so much broader than what Israel is going to look like and what the Middle East is going to look like when Iran is trying to sow chaos and expand its imperial control across the region. But what Western democracies are going to look like in the face of a very large movement um, that has weaponized its hatred of Israel and its hatred of Jews in a way that has clearly and fundamentally undermined your democratic rights and representation. Elon, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Brendan. It's been a pleasure.
thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.